Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 299, J.A. Pitts. And now, constructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Welcome to Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, your podcast for science fiction and fantasy media. This is Brent Bowen, and I'm flying solo this week, but I have a real treat for you. Christy Cherish will be taking the helm next week, and we'll be doing the intro, part of the intro. We're going to try and get together and chat Mad Max and ebook pricing. There was... A lot of discussion this week online, started by Chuck Wendig, really, around some ebook pricing and some of the pricing agreements. So we're going to, Christy and I are going to try and connect this week and chat about ebook pricing for episode 300. So you can expect to see that. But today we are joined by urban fantasy author J.A. Pitts. He's going to be talking with Christy about varying aspects of managing a writing career And from time to time, even on our show, you have heard authors talk about their experience where they've had a relatively successful book launch where they've earned back their advance, and yet the publishers drop the series for whatever reason. So J.A. is going to recount some of his experiences. He's had a very similar experience, and he'll recount some of that with Christy and how He's ended up managing his writing career, even though he's hit a few potholes in that regard. He's also going to talk about his popular Black Blade Blues series. I, With the alliteration, I have to be careful and really bite that, (laughs) bite those words off. Try and say that six times fast, right? Black Blade Blues series. So J.A. and Christy will chat about that. This is Christy's really her first solo gig or solo interview, so... Excited to hear that the discussion as much as you all are. I got a bit of a preview, but haven't had the opportunity to take a full listen. If you haven't had a chance to listen to episode 298, certainly go on to episode 298 or this episode and take a moment to enter yourself into Timothy C. Ward's scavenger giveaway. He's giving away several different types of copies of Scavenger, and you want to make sure to enter into that giveaway. And we'll have the giveaway is going to be going on for about the next week, and then we're going to start a new giveaway. So if there's a, a day hiccup here or there in that giveaway with Tim's book, Scavenger, make sure just to wait a day or two and then and then jump back on episode 299 or 298 or the forthcoming episode 300, and enter into the giveaway. There's a a little widget that's on the post that allows you to enter in a variety of different ways by either following Tim's Twitter account or liking it on Facebook, what have you. But you, you definitely have to go through the widget on episode either 298, 299, or the forthcoming episode 300 to participate in the giveaway. So you'll want to definitely take a moment to do that. Tim's received, I know, early, a lot of early buzz and a lot of early praise on that book. It's based in 
he received permission from Hugh Howey to create a derivative work out of the popular sand series that uh, Hugh Howey has. So Tim's got a great thing going with Scavenger. I'm going to be busy next week and even the weeks following. Uh, really, the next six weeks, I'm going to be pretty busy out there talking about books and publishing and a variety of venues more than just on the show. If uh, you happen to be in the Midwest and in the Kansas City area, would definitely look forward to catching up. I'm going to be at Conquest 46 in Kansas City, which happens Memorial Day weekend. I don't know how much coverage I'm going to do there. I mean, Christy and I have been pretty busy, and I know based on the interview slate that we have going, we're we're certainly booked through July, and we can move some things around if I have a, a fit of inspiration. But I'm going to certainly be on several panels while I'm at the convention, and I'll end up publishing on my personal blog my my schedule, but Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I'll be on some different panels, either as a panelist or a moderator. One of the panels that will be on, and I mentioned before, is a, a Hugo panel, and it'll be a discussion ar- around whether the Hugo still matter. I'll also be discussing podcasting, sports, and science fiction, which if you're interested in that topic, I certainly want to refer you to our episode with Fonda Lee, because we spend a great deal of time talking about sports and speculative fiction there. And I'm also going to be talking, I'm particularly excited about this panel, the resurgence of indie bookstores. So I'll be moderating that panel with some local indie bookstore authors and some other interested parties at Conquest 46 in Kansas City, which again is Memorial Day weekend. The author guest of honor for that is Brandon Sanderson. And I might try and we've had Brandon on the show before, but I'm a big fan of his work, even his young adult work. So I know he has the Steelheart series, which we've done a giveaway tied to it. And I've read the initial book titled Steelheart. And I think Firefight was the second book. And I'm also a big fan of The Rhythmatist, which is one of his other young adult. It's uh, steam, kind of a steampunk magic and mystery book. So I might try and have Brandon on the show to, to talk about young adult books. We'll see. Again, uh, sometimes when I'm at a convention, I, I might prefer just to catch up with friends and enjoy the conversation that's taking place there. But we'll, we'll see if a fit of inspiration hits me and I might have someone on the show. George R.R. R. Martin will also be there as the, interestingly enough, the editor, guest of honor, Although I guess that shouldn't be too big of a surprise considering George was just recently shortlisted with the Locus Awards for Rogues, I believe. And I might include a link to that in the show notes because we we reviewed that and I had neglected to mention that when Christy and I spoke about the Locus Awards last episode. So George R. R. Martin will be there. He is not on the Hugo panel. So I in looking at my schedule, I was wondering whether he would be on the on the panel and Apparently, he's had enough of that conversation, at least for now. So excited to to see him and maybe have a conversation with him on the sidelines about uh, the Hugo debate and the controversy there. But that's my schedule for Conquest. And then a couple weeks after Conquest, so about the middle of June, is the Campbell Conference in Lawrence, Kansas. And I know I've mentioned this on the show, but if if you all aren't familiar with the Campbell Conference and you're creating a you know proverbial bucket list 
of conventions to attend. And and I know Lawrence, Kansas, if any of you've been to Lawrence, Kansas, sometimes the Campbell Conference is in July or late June and it gets kind of sticky and muggy. So I get it. Doesn't sound like the best thing to attend, but I'm telling you this, this year, the guest list is phenomenal. And I don't even want to mention the guest list because I'm going to leave somebody out that I don't want to to leave out, but I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes so you can look at the the guest list. If you're not familiar with the Campbell Conference, I'll step back really quickly. If you're not familiar with the Campbell Conference, the Friday evening of the Campbell Conference, it's all centered around a short story workshop and a novel writing workshop that's about, if I'm going to get it correctly, I know it's at least a week and it's probably two weeks long. And then it capstones at the end with the John W. Campbell and Theodore Sturgeon Memorial Awards on Friday evening. And then Saturday during the day, there's generally readings and a small group panel discussion. And by panel, it's more of a roundtable discussion of about 20 to 25 people. All told, the convention's probably 50 to 75 people coming in and out. So it's really an intimate convention. And there's usually a central track or a central theme around this roundtable discussion. And this year's roundtable is from the fringes to the classroom, what's next in science fiction education? And what's interesting about the guest list is you certainly have some educators in there, but you also have a lot of folks that are into transmedia that are going to be attending and visual and audio media that I'm excited to, to see also digital media that will be participating in addition to the educators. So I am really excited for the convention, even though it's more education-based and they're going to be discussing a lot of degree-granting programs in science fiction. I know just by the nature of the conversation, it will extend outside of just traditional-based education and will be truly enlightening. So I will be attending it as well. I will be planning on trying to get an individual or two from that convention to agree to an interview. If not for our regular segments, interview segments, then for the suds and science segment. Because again, based on some of these folks being involved in transmedia and education, I think there will be a good scientific angle from having a conversation with one of those folks. And if not directly at the convention, then following the convention. Well, I think I have rambled on enough because I want to let you all enjoy Christy and J.A. Pitt's conversation about managing a writing career and the Black Blade Blues series. And so until next time, and it will be episode 300. Can you believe it? We'll, we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Hi, this is Tina Connolly from Toasted Cake, reminding you that podcast nominations are now open for the 10th Annual Parsec Awards. Do you have a favorite podcast? What about a favorite episode from last year, a story that really stuck with you, or a roundtable that was particularly insightful? Well, you can bring a little joy into our humdrum lives by nominating your favorites from 2014. You have until May 31st, and the winners will be announced at DragonCon this September in Atlanta. Find all the details at ParsecAwards.com.
So this is Christy at Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing. Guys, this is my first solo show, so um, be kind and bear with me. Um, so a couple of weeks back, some of you know I was at NorwestCon, the Seattle Science Fiction and Fantasy Convention, and I had the chance to chat with author John A. Pitts. For listeners not familiar with John's work, he's the author of the urban fantasy series Black Blade Blues about Sarah Bohall, master blacksmith and budding dragon slayer. Uh, John's also a mainstay in the Northwest speculative fiction writing scene uh, as a mentor to new authors, and um, he, along with Ken Scholes, co-present one of the all-time best convention workshops I think I've ever attended. Uh, twice now, I've gone. And I've learned more about the business of writing there and what to expect as a new writer getting into publishing than I've learned in an hour and a half anywhere else. So today, John's here to talk with us about what he's got going on, uh, writing-wise, and also um, some aspects of the writing industry that often we don't get to talk about and get overlooked. Uh, often we focus on how to get your foot in the door and get a book published, but not how to manage your career and some of the things that commonly come up um, partway through a series. So, John... Thank you for taking the time to join us. Yeah, glad to be here. It's the first time we've had you on the show. Tell us a bit about Black Blade Blues and how you got into writing. Well, gee, uh, got into writing as a reader, I guess, in the beginning. I, I think I wrote my first poems in, at nine years old. Uh, when I was in sixth grade, I was going to be the next poet laureate slash president of the United States. That didn't work out so well, so I decided I would become a novelist instead. <laughs> I wrote my first novel at 14, uh, which uh, my best friend took it with him when he moved away. This is back before computers, so it was all, all on, on a manual typewriter, so there was no proof that it existed anymore, which is probably good for everyone. <laughs> and then, um, you know, I just, I, I have a degree in English with uh, emphasis in creative writing, so it took me about 10 years to unlearn a lot of what I learned there. And then I started selling short stories in 2006. For the Sarah books, you know, it's interesting. I was invited to, to write a short story for an anthology about magic swords. And so knowing how competitive the anthology market is and knowing and understanding really from experience how timing works on that, I figured a lot of people were going to turn in stories about Excalibur, you know, because that's about magic sword. Um, and then talking to the editor afterwards found out that, yeah, Four, four people sent in an Excalibur story. So what I did was I looked for a sword that I could be excited about, but also wasn't probably going to be, you know, the first things other people think about. So I ended up going with Norse mythology because I'm a big fan of it. So I went with Graham, or Fafner's Bane, the dragging slaying sword. And um, so once I had that in my pocket, I had to think about, again, I'm in competition with lots and lots of other writers. How am I going to make my story stand out more? And so I decided that the majority of stories would be written from the point of view or about the warrior who carries the sword. And about 99.9% of the stories followed that. There was one other story that wasn't about the warrior. Um, so I decided I would write about the blacksmith because I'm more interested in the makers than the destroyers. So now that I had my sword and I had the, the fact that I was going to be a blacksmith, and then I decided... I'm a big fan of urban fantasy, so I would try to figure out how to make this urban fantasy, and then decided my main character would be female. I tend to write mostly female main characters, and has to do with my upbringing and positive. But um, and so I started writing a short story, 
And to, to get about three, 4,000 words into the short story, I realized that, um, that this really was a novel. So I wrote the short story, sold it. The editor liked it, um, asked me to make one small change, and then published it and said, please write this, as, write the novel that this is set in. So that's how it all, all came to be. So you ended up, I didn't realize that, so you ended up almost getting, uh, so, so correct me if I'm wrong, but you got the novel deal off of the short story. I, I did, sort of. Um, so the short story was published in an anthology by Daw uh, called Swordplay. It's probably still out there. Um, but I wrote the novel and then submitted it to tour um, to an editor that I had met previously. So, you know, you and I met at Oricon and then, and then the Westcon. To me, conventions are a great place for you to meet your editor. So I met the editor who bought my book at um, a Northwest convention called Radcon uh, back in 2008. And um, so, anyway, Claire Eddy was the editor at tour, and I had met her previously, and we got along well. And this is a something I talked about in the class that I teach is, you know, I met her and we sat in the bar and chatted about our kids and the industry, but we didn't talk about, hey, I've got this novel, will you please read it? You know, I was just two people being introduced by a mutual friend of ours, Jana Silverstein, and we talked about, you know, just the industry, et cetera, and then afterwards I dropped her an email that said, would you like to see my novel? And that was the first novel I ever wrote, and she rejected it in about, I don't know, three months. Um <laughs> But the Black Boy Blues was the second novel I wrote. So after she rejected my first one, she came back and said, just make sure you send me the next novel that you write. So I wrote Black Boy Blues, and I, I mailed it to her. It's a pretty funny story, too, because contrary to what you hear out there, I didn't start with an agent. I started with the editor. So I sent her this novel, and then I went to World Fantasy in Calgary. And if you've ever been to a World Fantasy, they do the awards um, at least this one, they give you the World Fantasy Awards on the last day of the con, so it's really hard if you don't plan it out and your airline leaves early. So I was going to leave before the actual um, award ceremony. And I was trying to talk to her all weekend, and it just wasn't working out because of uh, everyone's busy, busy schedule. So I'm, I'm preparing to leave to go up to my room to check out and get my stuff and head to the airport. And the elevator door opens and there's Claire Eddie, right? <laughs> and so she says, hey, I've got your novel on the floor of my office. And I said, oh, Okay. And I've been to her office now since then, and there are thousands of manuscripts all over the place. Um, so she says, why don't you tell me what it's about? So I literally had four floors to give her a hint on what Black Lake Blues was about. Uh, but luckily, I had been sitting in the bar earlier, and I heard that Tor was looking to buy some urban fantasy. And so I mentioned that, and I mentioned what the book was about. So she says, follow me. So we left the elevator and stood out in front of a little gift shop and talked for a while. And she says, okay, I'll go read it now. And that was on a Sunday. On Monday, she went back to New York and read it. And um, it was six weeks from the time I sent it to the time she read it before um, she offered me a deal on the book. Wow. It it really does put the meaning into elevator pitch, though. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's such a cliche, but it it actually happened to me. It was um, weird once before I tried to pitch a novel to um, Ginger Buchanan over at Penguin. And so I get in the elevator and I'm all prepped from college and all the workshop I've ever been in. And you know, it's like, okay, me alone in the elevator with a, a, a big, high-powered editor. And so I say, hey, hi, hi, how are you, Ginger? And we'd met previously and she says, well, my dog just died. Oh. Oh, well, that totally kills the pitch, right? I mean, she, she gave a story once about somebody who followed her around in the con wanting her to read the manuscript and she said, I'm, I'm actually doing business with my clients and I'm not accepting the manuscripts right now. So the woman followed her into the bathroom and 
slit her manuscript under the stall door. So you just don't want to be that person. Wow. And the the crazy thing is, is that it sounds like it would be very much, um, it sounds like it would be common sense not to do that. Yet there were all these stories of that happening at conventions and such. Um, one one other thing I wanted to ask before I before I forget uh, something you said earlier, you've got an English background, and you mentioned that you had right. to forget some of the things from your English background uh, before getting oh, into yeah. writing. What were some of those? You know, so the first story I turned in in my very first workshop in my college program, the, the instructor who was a brilliant guy, uh, but he sent it back to me with a page and a half of handwritten notes. Please explain the following words. Um, and I had written a cyberpunk story, and he had no context for anything about the story. But he, he and I got along really famously, but the problem is they want to teach it a certain way based on, let's put it this way, how, how many times have you heard this is the way you have to do something? So Every workshop I've mythology. ever been to. Yeah. <laughs> right. Every time. And, and so there's, there's this mythology that says, here's the way you have to do this, and if you don't do it this way, you can't be successful. It's only when you get a little more experience under your belt and realize that there's certain sensibilities in what's classically understood as literary fiction, different from romance, different from westerns, different from science fiction. I mean, they all have their tropes, they all have their expectations, and if you don't understand the differences in those, um, you have difficulties in, in, in your stuff. And it's not that you can't do any cross-genre work, because it happens all the time. But if you're being pounded into your head over a four-year degree that the only way to do something is the one way, it's hard to unlearn that. So, you know, I have a certain belief in how fiction was supposed to work as opposed to how it really does work. And it was interesting to me because, you know, I'm a fan of Stephen King, and I think he's a brilliant craftsman, um, but I like about half his work. Other half his work, I, I just dislike immensely. And, and so I did a lot of studying on why that was. And once I started studying the people in the genre, I mean, I read science fiction before I read anything else. And, you know, and, and to have a literary approach that says everything you're, that you read and that you love is just wrong, and there's a lot of dissonance in your head. And, and a lot of this is on me, of course. I mean, because I interpreted the world the way that I interpreted, and it took me a while to unlearn some of those really bad behaviors about what was good and what was not good. Um, but once I did, and it was really interesting, I did a two-week workshop with Chris Rush and Dean Lucas Smith where the first thing they really do is, is challenge everybody's mythology. And it's weird how, you know, growing up, you, you make decisions in your life. And unless you get challenged on those decisions, you really don't ever change them. And that I, I just remember vividly, there's something I've decided the world worked a certain way when I was 14 and writing my first novel that I just believed was the truth until I started marketing my fiction and studying how other people wrote their fiction. And I didn't even realize that I had had that mythology in my head until someone challenged me on it. It's fascinating psychologically. We are, we are definitely our own worst enemy. And, you know, I've got kids, and one of the things I tell them is the way you want to be successful in life is to be a constant learner and to always challenge the assumptions that you make in life. And this has been the real big epiphany for me. And once I had that, once I really really started challenging the, the magical belief system that I had built in my head, I started selling short stories. You have a lot of advice is distilled down to try and get it into a very, very tight message, but you end up losing all the context. 
when you're doing that, which is is, is kind of what you're kind of what you're um, uh, you're talking about. But um, well, no. it's also when you're prepared to understand the message, right? Yeah. No, that's really cool. Um, so I mentioned briefly uh, w- one of the ways I I'm familiar familiar with your work is the workshops that um, that you and Ken Kenshels do in the Northwest. How did you guys end up? getting involved um, in setting up those workshops, and, and what was the goal when you guys started that out? So back in 2001, I, uh, I interviewed for a closed writers group here in the Puget uh, Sound area called Fairwood Writers, and it's a small group, 8 to 10 people, and you have to try out for the group. So once I got into the group, um, they run the writers workshop at NorwestCon. And so that's when I started doing a lot of workshopping on the coordination and reading tons and tons of manuscripts. And my friend Ken and I, we both met um, right after my daughter was born, and we've been writer friends, you know, ever since. And we would critique stories at these workshops. And, you know, we've done tons and tons and tons of stories and workshops. And one of the things we found out that we were seeing some really basic failure in some of these submitted stories. And after, we use Clarion style in that workshop. So afterwards, there's always a, a rebuttal period where the author gets to ask questions. And we started seeing a trend in the types of questions that were asked. And we had been on panels in other conventions where we saw similar questions being asked. So we went to the con and we said, look, we don't, NorwestCon and Fairwood Press, they really don't limit the stories that go in. There's not a jury. We will take pretty much anybody's story that comes in. I said, but we're seeing some very specific flaws and issues and questions that are coming up that we would like to have a workshop where we could spend an hour or two and just let people ask these questions. Because I just remember early on when Ken and I were on a panel at BikingCon up in Bellingham, Washington, and we were confused why people would put us on a a convention panel at that point in our careers. And it wasn't until after the panel was over that we realized that there was a lot of people out there who had some very fundamental questions, that there's really no place to ask those questions, right? Mm-hmm. And so we said, let's just do this. So we had, I think the first one, we had two hours. Ken took off and did the first one at Oricon, and it was it was a good success. And then when he came to the Westcon, we tag-teamed it. And then there have been years that, you know, Ken's had some hiccups in his life, like, oh, I don't know, twins being born. <laughs> For some reason, twins being born... <laughs> disrupt your con schedule. I don't know why. <laughs> now, so, you know, so there were times where, you know, either I taught it by myself or Ken taught it by himself, but it's always come across as, you know, really, really important to people. And we've had as many as 45 people in that session in, at NorwestCon, and, and it's always been a very positive experience. And, it, and it's never the same. And that's what I love about it is, one of the things that we do for your audience, one of the things that we do is we put notepads on the, on the wall, you know, the great big tear sheets, and we have people write down their questions on craft and on the business, and then on just any, you know, potpourri, anything that goes. And then we answer those questions in the context of our own careers and how our careers have modified. So as our careers change and grow, our answers will sometimes change, and depending on the audience, we get different questions. So it's been really powerful for us because, hey, I always learn when I teach, but I find it fascinating that there's so many fundamental questions that new authors and even middle-experienced authors just have never had an opportunity to ask somebody. 
And so we've just evolved it over the years with that. And we, we've mainly taught it at these two cons. We've done a couple other small venues, but it, you know, it's our way to give back to the community. And because there have been people along the way that have helped us immensely. And it's just you know, important for us to help the next crew come up the line. One of the things I, I remember, one of the many things I got out of that workshop was that I learned how you guys went out and you talked exactly exactly how advances worked and how they were divided up and, you know, um, submission processes and, uh, you know, submitting your manuscript to editors and that, that sort of thing. And so it wasn't a surprise to me when... Uh, I finally did get published and, um, or, you know, I, I started talking to, to publishers and, um, and I understood that. So it wasn't a huge surprise or it wasn't a nebulous black box. So no, it's, it's a fantastic workshop. Um, so you guys have always been really forthright in, in the, in the workshops, um, and, and very open with giving information, um, with new writers, which leads nicely into the next thing that I wanted to talk with you about, which is, um, so your series Black Blade blues, you know, is, is by all, by all standards a success. Um, I, you know, it's sold well, earned out its advance, I believe. Great reviews of Publishers Weekly, Kirkus. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm halfway through the book right now and I've already picked up the second one. It's, it's a great urban fantasy read. So there are a lot of things that can happen in publishing along the way. Um, and partway through even a successful series and, we don't always hear about stories um, from writers about how to manage things that can happen. So first, what happened with your series and, um, and why? See, that's the $64,000 question is why. Um, <laughs> the first book came out and did really well. There was a um, first series, I believe, that Tor published in Urban Fantasy. That's what I was told. I'm pretty sure it's true. And they didn't necessarily publish it the way that everyone else would publish your urban fantasy. They started out with hardbacks. Tor tends to start out with hardbacks. Um, partly through the process, they realized that most urban fantasy doesn't start out with hardbacks, so they also released the trade paperback at the same time. So when you release the trade in the, in the hardback at the same time, it one tends to cannibalize the sale of the other. And most urban fantasy readers aren't going to drop $27 on a hardback. So um, <clears throat> the sales for the hardback was bad, abysmal. Sales from trade were decent. A year later when the mass market came out, it did excellent and it went back to a second printing. Mm -hmm. um, that's about the time that Honeyed Words came out. Then Honeyed Words um, went back to a second printing on the trade. Again, they released the hardback and the trade at the same time and then the hardback didn't do well. Then when the mass market came out, and this is something that happens in publishing, right? So there for a long time you had two major major buyers, and that was Barnes & Noble and um, Orders Books. And what would happen is the buyers for those companies would look at the trends and they would say, we sold 12 books last time, I'm going to buy 12 books this time. And it may have been shipped 25 books the first time, right? Mm -hmm. So what happens is they cut the print run on book two to match what the orders were, and it had a smaller distribution footprint. So the first book, um, Mass Market for Blackboard Blues, came out at grocery stores and drugstore chains, and it was a you know, pretty wide distribution. When the second book came out, it didn't hit that wide, of, uh, wide an audience. Don't get me wrong, the book sales just weren't there. So when we're, when we're out there trying to divine the reasons why, you know, as a reader, as an author, my first reason why the books 
aren't doing as good as the last book is because I'm a lousy writer, right? Mm-hmm. Those are the head games that a lot of writers have is we call it the imposter syndrome sometimes. See, people are really going to find out that I'm not very good. And just as soon as that had settled in, I ended up winning the Spectrum Award for Best Novel for Honeyed Words, which totally you know kicked my psychosis in the teeth. <laughs> um, but there were still fewer books to be printed. So if you look at the sales trend, book two had a downward trend. Not a good thing when it comes to the business side of publishing. And publishing is a business. And it is their business to make money. And they want to make money as fast and as successfully as they can. And the mid-list writers today from traditional publishing, um, I feel, are in more danger than ever because they're looking for the next big hit. Mm-hmm. Now, I can't speak exactly what the reason was for Core, but I do know that when Book 3 came out, they released uh, Forged and Fire. They released the hardback by itself when they saw what had happened to the prior two books. Mm-hmm. And that book sales for the hardback were significantly better than the first two hardbacks. A year later, they released the, mass, the trade paperback, and it was okay, but there was still a downward trend. It did not sell as good as Book 2. Mm-hmm. And then they decided at that point that due to the their vision of the marketplace, they're going to they're starting to reduce the amount of mass markets they put out. And so um, because they believe that the ebooks will take over the mass market portion of the of the industry, I, I disagree with that. I buy tons of mass market books, and other publishers seem to disagree with that. But you know, this is their business model. Super great people. I love them to death. Um, it's just one of those cases where the book wasn't as popular as they had hoped. It took longer for it to earn out than they had hoped. And all the awards aside, it all comes down to math, right? It's about the econo- economics. If book three sells less than book two, them buying a book four indicates to them that they will probably sell less than book three, right? Mm-hmm. Not complicated. Now, there's a belief amongst writers that maybe publishers should help build up the midlist again because there's a lot of books and series that built over time, right? And that they would nurture the authors and then maybe the next book would do better or maybe the next series would do better. And it might, you know, I am working on a new series mm-hmm. uh, and it might do better than this one. So it doesn't change the fact that something that I thought was going to be, I'd already written, already written the next two books in their series. Mm-hmm. before they decided that they weren't going to pick it up anymore. So it's pretty devastating to me, but, you know, that's that's just how the business works. And that's, and that's what people have to understand is it's not personal. You know, my editor spent a lot of time trying to work, work the numbers around to pick up that next book, and it just didn't work. Mm-hmm. And And I know she spent a lot of time trying to make that work. And so I have no ill will to them. I just... I think it's the nature of the business that we're in. And self-publishing and ebook sales have so dramatically changed the landscape that the traditional publishers are scrambling around trying to figure out how to stay not just, you know, liquid in this business, but also viable. Yeah. And it's it's also not, and, and, and I think this is what maybe surprises authors, is that it is absolutely no reflection on the quality of the writer or the books, even though, as, as you said, authors seem to have this fail-safe at that, or they, they have this sort of automatic go-to, which is, as you said, the imposter syndrome. And they're, they're two different, you know, one's the art and, and one's the, as you, as you point out, the business side. This is also a really common thing to happen, or it, 
it's it's something that happens to most writers as well during their writing career. Um, I know Diana Rowland had a similar thing with um, with her first series. Kim Harrison is another urban fantasy author who had a previous series under a different name, Megan Cook, I believe it was, and had to change her name uh, before the Hollow series came out. So it it really is a reality of the publishing industry for authors. Let me, let me give you let me give you two two small examples that help do that. There used to be another major distributor out in the wide world, and it shut down when my friend, I don't know if uh, if your audience knows uh, Jay Lake, good friend of mine who passed last year. Jay's book, Mainstream, Mainspring, came out in mass market um, at the same time that this other major distributor folded. So half of his print run was locked in somebody's warehouse and unable to be gotten to. So guess wow. what that did to his sales? And again, no control on either his part or the publisher's part, right? Yeah. The world is just a really crazy place. A positive one I'll give you an example for is Patricia Briggs. I love her work. I'm a huge fan of hers. Yeah, huge fan of hers as well. When her Mercy series came out, we were at a convention together when she got word that she had hit the New York Times bestseller list with the second book in that Mercy Thompson series. And by all evidence, because, you know, that's one of the things we do is always collect evidence. By all evidence, the, the biggest reason why, besides the fact that she's a brilliant writer, is somebody else's book was supposed to come out. Laura K. Hamilton was supposed to have a book hit that month and it got delayed. And so her book got moved up to the upper slot and got better publicity. And the audience that was waiting to pick up the next Laurel K. Hamilton book was like, I need a book. What am I going to find here? And they saw her book and picked it up. Nobody expected that to hit the times list, including her agent or her editor or anybody. Wow. So there's positive stories out there as well. And the issue is, especially for writers, write the next book. You just don't know what's going to happen. Your job is to tell really good stories. And your audience will show up. It's just a matter of time. I, I think that's fantastic advice. Um, you've for you you already have the other two books in the series. You do have a loyal readership for Black Blade Blues. And what are some of the next steps? And what are the options when you know for writers when they do have a series that a publisher no longer wants to pick up? Well, gosh, there's it's it's pretty unlimited. Um, I'm in talks with another publisher right now with an editor for a mobile publishing house. And I'm waiting to hear back from him on that. And they're talking about picking up the series where, you know, in book four. I really hope that'll work. I, I know him as an editor and I know the publisher and I'm, I'm very, very thrilled about the opportunity. I don't want to give too many details yet. I'll blog about it as soon as I, as it becomes public, but it, because it may not happen. But I'm really excited about that. But if that doesn't fly, and there's lots of new publishing houses springing up all the time. I'm, I have friends that do, you know, uh, Resurrection House and Fairwood Press, and uh, there's just tons and tons of new publishing houses out there. But self-publishing is also an option for this, right? And there's a lot of, especially, this is interesting to me, is a lot of the big-name writers, people who've had longer careers are coming out and, and self-publishing their backlist. Yeah. Now, as a writer in a mid-series like this, I can't publish my, I can't republish my existing books because they're still under uh, contract, right? Mm -hmm. I'm still selling these books. It's amazing. Black Blade Blues is selling 20, 30 copies a week and has been since 2010. Yeah. At least that since 2010. But, um, so they're not going to revert back to me for a while, apparently. But, um, you know, you can do a Kickstarter. There's been some very successful Kickstarters to get the money up to put books out. Uh, There's always self-pub. I know people who are serializing novels. Um, on their websites or putting out small 30,000 word novels to continue the series um, on ebooks. 
So there's, there's really a lot of options to you out there. And if this falls through for me on this one publisher, I'll probably do a Kickstarter to help get the book out if that doesn't work. There's, I mean, I just, if you can think of it, there are ways to do this. I mean, I know friends who are in talk with audiobooks, you know, prior prior to that, going straight to audiobooks. I know one person is working looking into putting the book, their next book as a comic book, as a graphic novel. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it, you, all the formats are available out there. We have more opportunities now than we've ever had in publishing. You know, I, I hear a lot of people over the years lament the fact that, you know, print is dead, um, books are dying, and, and it's just absolutely not true. We, we've sold more books in paper than any time in history. And they keep saying we're going to stop doing it, but there's just more venues and there's more, there's more venues to buy the books, which is what's been really super helpful to a lot of writers. Mm-hmm. There were people who would try to sell the books out of the back of their cars and drive around the conventions 20 years ago. Now you can just put it online and people all over the world find it. It's pretty amazing. Yeah, there's there's more opportunities to discover to discover new um, new writers and uh, and new readers uh, with the internet and and with the information technology now. I have a word of caution on that. Is if I had started self publishing my book back before I had gotten to the point where I was publishable, in my opinion, um, I would have been a, had a lot of disappointment because some of my early stuff wasn't publishable, which is why people didn't publish it. There's a danger with self-publishing in that you don't you shortcut the learning curve. And um, while I think it's brilliant, and I think if you're doing your job well, it, it can be very successful, I think you have to make sure that your audience knows to practice the craft. Yeah. Um, Get good feedback. Do 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 the job itself, and not not necessarily looking just for shortcuts. You, you sort of hinted that you might have another project in the works outside yeah. of of Black Blade Blues. Can you talk about that a bit, or or can you say anything about it yet? Sure. I mean, I'm writing it on spec, so I, there's there's nothing private about it. Um, it's a new. Uh, I'm doing something that's basically trying to harken back to old, like Larry Niven and Jerry Purnell did a bunch of post-apocalypse-style books, Lucifer's Hammer, Footfall, that type of stuff. I was always a big fan of that. So I'm writing a new series that's pre-apocalypse up to the apocalypse based on a genetic plague that gets created and how the people deal with it and who the survivors are. So the first book goes up to and just past the, the apocalypse of when the, most of the world dies out. And then after that, I'm going to do... Um, it, there's two books in the first set. And then if those get purchased and do well, the next two books will be 10 years later. And if those get bought and do okay, the next two books will be 100 years later. So basically see how we survive as we as we are forced to evolve and our society breaks down. And, um, oh, and by the way, there's vampires. Oh, nice. And not the sparkly, sparkly <laughs> you know. Yeah, none, none of that stuff. This is um, The underlying premise of the book is... We, we discover that there's another. We have another species of humanity out there that is the vampires. Cool. So, yeah, done a lot of research. I've got a friend who's an epidemiologist that I've been working with on some of this stuff um, previously, and um, who I'll be working with again. I'm hoping when they get the draft finished. But um, trying to make it to me, it's more along the lines of a thriller than than anything else. But um, it, it almost sounds you know, a bit sci-fi too. Yeah, totally. You know, and I would say if I didn't, if they didn't have the vampires in it, but to me it's one of those. You know, they're not they're not sparkly magical vampires. They're actually, you know, I'm, I'm describing them in, in more of a uh, from a genome point of view, which which seems to be working out fairly well. So I'm excited about it. So in Black Blade, Black Blade Blues, you've got uh, a lot of supernatural creatures in the book. 
dragons, witches, dwarves. Um, who's your favorite? And there are some great villains in there too. So who's your favorite villainous style character monster to write? Mm, so I think for this series, my favorite is going to be Frederick Sawyer. <laughs> I, um, I, yeah, he's, it, he's pretty fantastic. Yeah. In, in my world, it's Norse mythology where, um, I'm trying to see where I can get away too much. Uh, basically, the, the world is secretly run by dragons. Dragons rule territory around the world in secret, and they're shapeshifters. And so one of the things I find fascinating about them, um, and, and to me, and all villains, is the fact that they're not one-dimensional. They're not two-dimensional. They're usually three-dimensional. And so while what are perceived as bad guys in my world are often way more complex than that, they are opposed to the, the, the machinations of my heroes, and that doesn't mean that they're necessarily outright evil. Now, there are some. There are some villains in this series that are, are just flat evil for evil's sake, but there are some that are a little more complex than that. Kind of like, kind of like Jamie in Game of Thrones, right? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you want to kill him, and sometimes he's really nice, and you don't understand why you don't want to just kill him anymore. <laughs> um, and that's one of the things I like about that series is, you know, George Martin plays with plays with us emotionally on who we should like and who we should dislike. That's I like that I like that style of writing because sometimes a two dimensional monster or bad guy is fun, but, but sometimes it's just too shallow for me. Where can people find information about you or follow you on social media? Okay, so I'm on Facebook at John Apitz. I'm on Twitter at J Apitz Writer because. I'm a writer. <laughs> um, I have a website called uh, japits.net. That's my website. So one of those places you can find news about me. And I, um, I'm on Facebook the most, um, so feel free to see me there. Um, I do a lot of stuff. I'm going to MissCon here soon in May, and I'll, I'll be teaching that class again. Okay. The uh, Evolution of a Writing Career yeah, at MissCon. So you can find me there. You can find me at Oricon usually, at WestCon. And I'm online, So and, and I, I tend to respond to just about anybody. So if you hit me online, I'll, I'll probably answer your questions. Okay. Um, for, for you listeners out there, we'll, um, uh, you'll be able to find uh, links to John's stuff in our show notes. Um, and books as well. Where can people find, where can people find your work? So the tour books are out. You can find them at Barnes & Noble or online. Um, they're all still in print. Um, ebooks or audiobooks on Audible. They just came out Audible this year, which has been nice. I have a short story collection that's out from Fairwood Press. It's called Bravado's House of Blues. And if you'd like to see some of my short work that isn't necessarily related to the other series, although there is a couple stories set in the Sarah world in my collection. Very cool. John, thank you so much for, uh, for taking time out of your Sunday afternoon to, uh, to chat, with, uh, chat with me at Adventures in Sci-Fi. You're very welcome. Okay. Uh, And folks, we'll talk to you next week. Visit Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast.